Good evening. My name is Lisa. I'm one of the leaders here. Tonight's teaching text comes from 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 to 8. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Caleb, um, one of the pastors from Trinity Grace in Park Slope. Greetings from Brooklyn. Nice to be with you. Um, I also uh, serve as a member of the apostolic team, uh, which gives some care and oversight for all the Trinity Grace sort of family of churches, and I have a, a message to you from the apostolic team. Um, as you, if you're aware of the uh, sort of goings-on in, in this beautiful parish here in Chelsea, you know that um, AJ and Elena Sherrill uh, not too long ago took a call um, to go and, and move into a, another stage of their ministry and pastoral life. And um, in response to that, uh, we, we, we prayed and sought God, and it seemed like there was people in uh, sort of the ecosystem of Trinity Grace already that really made sense to step in and begin giving at least interim pastoral care here in Chelsea, uh, which has been David and Lisa, and they have been doing a phenomenal job. Uh, I don't have to tell you this, you already know this. So uh, not too long back, we entered a feedback period as we were ready to retire um, the label of interim and officially uh, install David and Lisa as the pastors of this parish uh, to the great enthusiasm of, of all of us. And um, we gave an opportunity for you guys to give feedback, and I just want to report from the apostolic team that that feedback was overwhelmingly positive, um, and we were just sensing, uh, you know, like one of those moments from the scriptures where it says it was right to the Holy Spirit and to us um, to move fully into this next season as we enter the fall to see David and Lisa installed as the uh, primary uh, parish pastors here in Chelsea. So that is something to celebrate. Um, and I'm very, very glad to give, that, to give that as an announcement, but also to tell you there's going to be the official installation and commissioning ceremony on September, uh, not next Sunday, uh, the Sunday after on the 11th. So be looking forward to that. Tell all of your friends and all their friends' friends and come. Great. Okay, First Thessalonians, but first World War II. Um, Let's get dark first. Uh, I actually just stumbled, stumbled across this uh, yesterday, and it was fascinating. It went down. Have you, you go, did you ever go down an internet rabbit hole where you're just like one thing leads to another? Uh, I, I, I stumbled across this date um, of a battle that I had never really heard about in World War II, 
And it's August 28th, 1940. And if you were like me and you have no idea what happened on that day, do not worry. I'm going to explain it. Um, Italy, on October 28th, 1940, invaded Greece. Now, the Axis powers at this point uh, were rolling through Europe. They had not yet, they had yet to have a defeat in the entire war up to this point. And Mussolini sent an ultimatum to uh, the Greek prime minister at 3 a.m. that the Italian troops were to be given free passage through Greece and they were going to be, they they should be allowed to set up um, sort of checkpoints at strategic locations throughout Greece. Uh, Metaxas, who was the Greek prime minister at the time, considered it for only a moment and then sent back a one phrase response, then it is war. Basically saying to Mussolini, absolutely not. We will go to war over this. The the, uh, ultimatum was given at 3 a.m. in the morning. By 5.30 a.m., Mussolini's troops began to pour over the border into Greece. And, and just before, they had conquered the country of Albania uh, with, with, with ease. Mussolini's um, sort of uh, advisors had told them that they would rout Greece in a matter of days or weeks at most. But they were humiliated because this Greek fighting force uh, gave fierce and unexpected resistance. And as the Italian forces trying to move through these mountain passes, they just met an absolute onslaught of the Greek soldiers, and they were not able to move forward. As a matter of fact, the Greek soldiers turned the, turned the Italians back, and they, they won the first victory for the Allied forces in World War II. Now, I had never really heard of this battle, but it's still celebrated today in Greece. Um, it's, it's celebrated as no day, the day Greece said no. The Italians said, let us in, and Greece said, no, and then they fought about it, and they won. I found all these hilarious, if you want, if you're nerding out on this like I do, I found all these funny political cartoons that showed Mussolini getting beat up by this little Greek guy. Fantastic. Check it out. It doesn't have the fame of Normandy or the Battle of Britain. There hasn't been movies uh, made about it, but when the war was over, Hitler's chief of staff was at the Nuremberg Trials, and he said this about this, this October 28th fight. The unbelievably strong resistance of the Greeks delayed by two or more vital months the German attack against Russia. If we did not have this long delay, the outcome of the war would have been different in the Eastern Front and in the war in general. I was so struck by that. This little battle in Greece that doesn't get much press, uh, and yet it was a strategic foothold, a window of opportunity that delayed the Germans' invasion of Russia, and according to someone who really knew the German operation, said that this swung the tide of the war on some level. A victory in Greece, (laughs) the first of its kind, in a campaign against the spreading evil that was threatening the world. The reason I point this out, the reason it is a day to remember, is our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians is a letter written about a victory in Greece. (laughs) A very small city experiencing an awakening to God and that being a opening a window, an opportunity, a floodgate that literally changes the history of redemption in in the world and particularly in the West and opens up awakening and revival to spread across Europe. So I want to tell you a little bit about this story so that when you approach 1 Thessalonians, uh, you don't just breeze through it like just pulling out personal devotional facts, but you see that this letter was written to celebrate one of the swing moments 
in the kingdom of God advancing in the world as Jesus had promised. Remember what Jesus had promised to his disciples before he had, he had, he had left them. His last sort of bit of instructions were, go to, go to Jerusalem, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. When the power of the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, these were relatively untrained disciples. Christianity, the movement of Jesus up to that point, was a, a small sect of, of, of the Jewish faith. The idea of sharing the message of Jesus in Jerusalem, I think, would have been realistic. Perhaps even spreading out into Judea. Now, there was tremendous racial tension between these disciples and the Samaritans, so maybe that was a little less less realistic, but the idea of going to the uttermost parts of the world, literally to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, would have seemed absolutely absurd, right? Historian Rodney Stark, he, he, he talks about this dilemma, about sort of the, the insurmountable natural odds that Christianity would have been facing when Jesus left and left this kind of ragtag group of 120 or so disciples with this mission, take this to the rest of the world. He's speaking of Jesus and these unlikely odds when he says this. This is in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He's talking about Jesus here. He said, he was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him. A dozen or so became his disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world. Whatever you think about Christianity, that's a question worth considering in just the arc of history. How does this obscure Jewish sect come to be the largest religion in the entire world? Now, from a Christian perspective, if you're already in the camp, the Jesus camp, if you're already part of the team, you say, resurrection, (laughs) right? Jesus comes back from the dead. That's a a complete game changer. All the things that he had said about the kingdom of God now have fulfillment in his very, in his very presence. And even however untrained you are, if you have the power of resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, of course he can, he can empower and take us forward. But even if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if you imagine in a room this size and an evening in New York City in the summertime, there's someone in here that's skeptical about the claims of Jesus and you don't have to raise your hand. But even if you struggle to believe the resurrection, there's a staggering sociological phenomenon that has to be accounted for on some level. How does this group of of Jewish believers in in a rural section in the far outskirts of the empire come to the place where they're able to impact the entire Roman world? Just a couple of statistics. You've probably heard some of these things before, but in AD 40, there was a thousand Christians scattered throughout the Roman empire. A thousand Christians throughout the entire empire. By AD 350, 53% of the population in the Roman Empire, over half of the people in the entire empire, were followers of Jesus, claimed Christianity as their faith. And this went all the way up to the highest places of power, Constantine. Now, that wasn't without its problems. <laughs> However, it's, a, it's something to marvel at. We've been looking at revivals, awakenings this summer. Marking the times when God did a particularly powerful move with the people and saying, how can we mine that for things to pray for? How can we say, God, would you do that in Chelsea? Would you do that in Brooklyn? Would you do that in in New York City? To ask God for that type of thing. And this awakening, this revival was so significant that in, in just a few hundred years, it changed the face of the Roman Empire. Now, I know you already know this, but they didn't have leather bound Bibles to circulate. They didn't have completed copies of the scripture. They didn't, now imagine this. 
They had no podcasts. No, I'm serious. I would not lie to you. No PR campaigns, no branding, no, no granola bars to hand out on the sidewalk. How did they grow a church? It's impossible. They had no conferences to invite people to. There were no celebrity pastors really at this point. Many of the things that we imagine are essential for building a movement of the church, they didn't have. And yet there was something about their life that was so compelling that it caught fire, that it spread across this entire empire. It was, I would say it was the source and the quality of their love. They believed that they were, they were supplied with such extravagant love from God that that changed their very identity. It changed the desires of their life. It changed the rhythms of how they lived. And then it impacted how, how they interacted with one another. They took care of this. The, the descriptions of the New Testament community, especially in the early part of the book of Acts, are staggering. They're beautiful. They're poetic. They're the type of church you want to be a part of if you're honest with yourself. They're meeting daily, they're sharing meals, they're taking care of one, or, one another's needs. And that type of love was distinctive, it was conf- compelling, it was profound. We as, as followers of Jesus know that it was fueled by something beyond just religious willpower and activity, but by the Holy Spirit himself. And this movement literally swept across the world. So something that was easily dismissed at first on the rural edges of the empire over a few hundred years comes to, a, to, to capture the imagination of the whole. And this moment in Thessalonica that Paul is celebrating in this letter was a key victory in that campaign. It was a key swing moment in, in, in the whole story, right? Thessalonica is a city in Greece. It's one of the New Testament cities that's still in existence. It was on the Via Ignatia, which is a road that ran from, from the, the capital in Rome to the eastern parts of the empire. It was a major thoroughfare. It was a cosmopolitan city. When you think of Thessalonica or Corinth, some of these cities, there would have been many of the sort of urban realities that are true here in New York. And the account of how the church gets planted in Thessalonica is in Acts 17, and it's only a few verses, so we're going to read it together. All right? Great. Let's do this. It's on the screen. They had no screens back in the first century. No, I, I wouldn't lie. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As, his custom, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Sorry, quick pause. If you want a little bit of a funny Bible translation thing, go and look up what they call the bad characters in the King James Version. Funny. Okay? They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, um, they, they dragged uh, Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, and I love this, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So, 
This is the revival, the awakening, the movement, the first missionary sort of foothold that Paul and Silas get going and sharing the gospel in, in Thessalonica. Now, just paying quick attention to what happens. If you're, if you're tracing the, the narrative in the book of Acts, there's an important detail that's not in this text, but it's important to know. Paul had no intentions of going to Europe. He had no intentions of going to Thessalonica. He was on his way to Asia. He was on his way to preach the gospel there. And in his best understanding of the strategy of where the church should go to preach the gospel next, he was on his way somewhere, and he kept getting prevented. There's these phrases in the New Testament, that, in, in the book of Acts, that are slightly amusing, like the Holy Spirit just kept stopping him from going. I have no idea if it was just like Paul's like, I really want to, and the Holy Spirit, I don't know how it happened, probably more circumstantial than like a hand on the forehead. But Paul, Paul falls asleep one night while being prevented from traveling to Asia, and he has a dream. And in his dream, a man from Macedonia is saying, come over here, help us, help us. So Paul recognizes the divine voice in this dream and and through a process of discernment recognizes, I need to change my plans. One of the most beautiful things of the, the, the way the kingdom of God works is that God doesn't just give you a map and say, show up here on this date. Instead, he walks right alongside us and he says, stop here, pause here, confess that. Ask for forgiveness there. Turn here, right? It's the process, that beautiful. John 15 describes it. We're abiding with him in intimacy, and that's what bears fruit. We're not just blindly by religious activity and willpower working our plan out and hoping God will come along and bless it, right? So Paul's sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is really important here, but it changes the entire plan of his missionary trajectory. And so he ends up not going where he planned to go and going to Thessalonica. He comes in and he does the thing that he always does. He's looking for a foothold, a place where people are having spiritual conversations. He goes to the synagogue. Will there be some level of common ground? And he begins from the Hebrew scriptures to reason that Jesus Christ really is who he claimed to be. There's three kind of basic uh, pillars or, or tenets of what he, he says to make his case that Jesus is who he says he is. The first, And each of these are really important for us in 2016 in New York City, with, with our tendency to sort of isolate everything down into individualism in our, in our world, we need to realize the story is so much bigger than just us. God does love you and have a, personal, have a plan for your life, but that's not where the story of God begins or ends. It's so much bigger than that, and that's actually one of the joyous, freeing things about the kingdom of God is it's not just about you personally, even though it is intensely personal. So he sits down and he says that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the, he's the climax of the story of Israel, all the way back to the very beginning when God made these promises to Abraham, that he was going to make a nation, that nation was going to bless the whole world, that Jesus is a, a fulfillment of that promise. He is, he is the culmination of where the story of Israel has been going up to this point. And, and Jesus comes as, as, as God himself and as Messiah to Israel. Now, I think the, the Jewish people at this point, they say there's, there's some things to argue about, the people who are in that synagogue. But then when he adds the next part, they go off the rails a little bit. Because he also says he had to suffer. And he had to suffer all the way to the point of dying. Now this was a big leap, because for, for Jewish expectation, Messiah was supposed to come in and be the king to be their rescuer, to drive out the Roman oppressors, to be the one who, who, who set their, their situation politically right, who gave them a place to be, a, to, to make them a great nation again. And for Messiah to come in and not do any of that, to not just be looking about at their political era alone, but to be looking at the, the spiritual condition of the entire human race was something that was a deep challenge. He had to suffer. He had to get involved with our pain. Now, you and I have no problem with that. 
Like, yes, I want a therapeutic God who understands my pain, who can move into the sort of the fountain of my suffering and be someone acquainted with grief because we know the world is broken. We know there is pain. But if you're looking for a triumphant Messiah, to say that he has to suffer was a challenge. To say he had to suffer all the way to the point of being humiliated and executed on a cross was a real challenge. Paul's saying he had to suffer because he had to, he had to absorb the curse. He had to absorb the brokenness of our world. All the way back to the, to the book of Genesis, right? Our, our world, not just human beings, but the world is, un, is under this curse of separation from God. Thorns and thistles, right? So Jesus goes to the cross and he has a crown of thorns. He takes the curse on himself. He absorbs our wrongs. He absorbs our brokenness. He was Messiah and he had to suffer. But if that's the end of the message, it's no gospel. He also rose from the dead. This is the Christian claim. Resurrection changes everything. If Jesus didn't get up from the, from the dead, Paul says, your faith is void, forget it, do what you want. If Jesus did raise from the dead, there's no negotiating anymore. He's God, he's conquered death, he is the way of salvation. We don't come with our list of demands. We come and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I give up this control I've been clutching in my hands. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It validates the other two claims about Jesus being Messiah and about absorbing the fullness of our, of our sin and then giving us life instead. So, Paul, against his own plan, stumbles into this synagogue in Greece and announces the message that he's been saying everywhere he goes, Jesus is Messiah, he had to suffer, he rose from the dead, he's king. There's another king other than Caesar. And this is an entirely new way of life. And it launches an entirely new community that's based on this. One, you can, and I want you to just think about this. This is what the, the, the early church is, is built on. You can know God, that he is a God who keeps his promises. You can know that he is with us, even in the pain of the world. You can know that he offers forgiveness and redemption and a forever relationship with him. That we can stake our hope on that. You can know that your death is not the end and that death is not the end of the story for human beings. It is an eternal, we have an eternal hope. And all of that is not just some ethereal message for church folk. It's something that you can enter into and live in now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul announces this and a new community was born. All of a sudden, I can imagine the Apostle Paul. I don't know what he had thought. He wasn't standing there when Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So maybe he didn't have enough uh, knowledge of the situation to doubt that reality. But now, a church is born in Europe. It's born in Greece. There's a small victory that opens a window for a whole new host of opportunities. Now, the uttermost parts of the world might actually happen. It's, it's, it's starting. There's a slow simmering. The, the movement of Jesus might get a foothold in the empire this way, but now there's going to be tremendous resistance because we're talking about the uttermost parts of the world. We're talking about an entirely different framework. The pluralism, the imperial cult of the Roman Empire, the military might uh, of the emperor, the violent opposition to any resistance whatsoever. What do the people in, in Thessalonica do when they want to get the apostles in trouble? They claim they're saying Jesus is king instead of Caesar. This is treason. This is sedition. And so there is a riot. Those, were th those who were threatened by the movement of Jesus start a riot in the city. They say, these men have turned the world upside down, and they've come to do the same here. And so the church is threatened. An awakening has begun, but the church is threatened. 
And eventually, they decide the safest thing for this infant church to do, and this is, you can imagine the late night prayer session and discernment and question, uh, church meeting about what do we do? And the the answer comes, we're going to send Paul and Silas away. If they leave, maybe the, the heat will go down. Basically, the church is like, let's go on the lamb for a little while, send Paul and Silas away. And let, let the heat turn down and see if we can continue before this whole thing is, is smothered out right away. So Paul and Silas, and Paul describes this as, as like being torn away from this infant congregation. Here, here's something that's connected to the very promise of Jesus. It's connected to Paul's very identity as who he is, to be someone to carry this message to the world. Now it's actually happening. He's seeing success and the thing he most wants to see in the world. And right as it begins, he's torn away from it. And he has no idea, right? He can't text, right? They're, they're, they're building his church, no screens. I just want to keep coming back to that. He has no idea how they're doing. He's separated from them. And he talks about how he agonizes in his spirit at being separated from them. I love the pastoral heart. Like, I, 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 I'm caring. How, how are they doing? So eventually, finally, an unspecified exact amount of time goes by. And Paul's finally able to send Timothy to get a report, is the church at Thessalonica even there still? Are any of the believers still hanging on? How is, how is Jason? How, how's, and, and he's just asking about these people that he, he, he had known face-to-face and seen God make them come alive. And he gets this report back, and it, it absolutely thrills him to the core. He finds out that they aren't just surviving, they're thriving. He sees them as part of his spiritual family, joining the movement of Jesus. He's saying, this is the, hey, remember I had that crazy dream about going to Macedonia, and then we did this, and this church is planted from that, and now they're thriving? He's got all the encouragement that comes from hearing the prompting of God and going on it, and then seeing what God does, which is beyond what you would ask or imagine. Some of us never get past number one. We're like, God spoke to me. Ah, that probably wasn't God. I did eat some crazy stuff. Ah, that can't be God. That's not the type of person I am. Right? We have all these reasons that we rationalize away when we get a prompting. Paul is like stage five. He's seeing the fruit on the tree. Getting this report back that even without him, without his preaching and leadership, and without Silas' encouragement, the church is thriving. It must be led by Jesus. You can imagine it made the persecution they experienced, being smuggled out of the city in the middle of the night worth it and so he writes to them and he's like this is a giddy apostleship (laughs) he's so overwhelmed that he's just the phrases that he uses are flowing with this I can't believe this is happening I so celebrate what God is doing in your midst may it continue may it go forward I just I just want to draw attention to the phrases he uses and then we're going to go to the communion table and celebrate Jesus who won all this for us anyway all right So see these phrases. We always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers, right? I I just love that. I think Paul was so true about that. I think he had names on his lips, people, families that he cared about. I'm praying for your kids. I'm praying for Aunt Barbara, right? All these people that he knew from Thessalonica. You know Barbara from Thessalonica? I'm praying for you, Barb. Love you. Your name's on my lips. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about Paul's writing, he loves this trifecta, right? Faith, love, and hope. This is part of the essentials of Christianity, to believe in God, to have confidence in him, to, to allow that so impact you that you surrender to his process and his love floods your life. The life of God comes to dwell in you. The, the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who in his very nature is love, comes to live in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. That impacts how your affections go towards God and how you relate to one another. Faith, love, and then hope that as you live this way into the world, there's going to be tremendous resistance. But what's pulling you into the future, into your destiny, into the thing God has for you, is, is the irrevocable promises of God. Faith, love and hope. Now, whatever you believe about God or Christianity, whatever, my guess is we want something transcendent to believe in, to put confidence in, something beyond ourselves. That's a a need of the human spirit. We want love, a place to belong, something to sacrifice for, to give ourselves for, to put our energies into. And we want hope, something that's pulling our our future forward. Faith, love, and hope. That d- defined this new infant church in Thessalonica. Does it define your life? Does it define us as a community? Do we realize we have that to offer in the message of the gospel to our neighbors, this transcendence, this place of belonging, this future story that God is drawing us into? I'm going to skip a couple things because I'm hot too. But the second thing I want you to see is, is God's love becomes tangible in their midst. L- listen to these phrases. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul is experiencing something. He- he's saying, uh, you're loved by God and you're chosen. And here's the way I know it. Because our gospel, this message about Jesus, came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And now you know how we lived among you. For, for our sake. Now, Paul is effusive in his joy at what? At seeing other people come to know how much they are loved by God. There's a, a category of Christians, and it should be all of us, that they, they love nothing more than to see someone else come alive with knowing how much they're loved by God. It just like stirs their soul so much. And this is what happened to Paul. You remember who Paul was? He wasn't always Paul. He was Saul. He was a Christian killer, stoning people, throwing them in jail, going to Damascus on a donkey. All of a sudden, he's encountered by the love of God. And his process of discipleship by the Holy Spirit, his entire identity was changed by this love. And he's saying, I can't believe it. You know this same love. You know what it feels like to know God's chosen you and drawn you in. Because it wasn't just with words that you heard about it. It was with power. And not just any power, but a specific personal, personalized God power. And deep conviction. Now, deep conviction, what is that? Right? We spend our life fronting, many of us. We, we put our best face forward. We put our best pictures with our best filters forward. We're showing the parts of our life that, so you can say to people, look at me, look how put together I am. I'm fun to talk to and do things with. Invite me upstate for the weekend. I would love to go. Like, we're, but, but God is, is wanting to say, hey, I know, I know who you're putting out there. And then I know who you really are in the secret 
places when your head hits the pillow and no one can hear your inner monologue. I know that very detailed part of you as well. And my Holy Spirit can penetrate. It says that with my word, I can penetrate to the very core of who you are between thoughts and intentions. I know you more than you know yourself. I can speak to you in your subconscious dreams and be like, come to Macedonia. That's how personal God wants to get. Sorry, that was a little bit unnecessary. That's how personal God wants to get with you. I know you all the way to the bottom. And I love you. I know all of your sin, all of your brokenness, everything that's ever happened to you, every way that you have a tendency to stray. I know you all the way to the bottom. And I give you this good news. I've absorbed everything on the cross. I'm extending you forgiveness, making you clean so that I can put my Holy Spirit in you. And we've got things to do together. I want to send you out full of my love to help other people know that they are loved and they are chosen and see that faith, hope, and love trifecta birthed in something else. Paul is ecstatic because he's seeing the love of God take tangible shape in someone's life. Right When I stand with couples and, and they're getting married, they're making a covenant with one another. And I say, you're naked and unashamed together. And this doesn't just mean their clothes are off and they're unashamed. It means their whole life is exposed before the other and they're learning to do covenant love, which is what God specializes in. He looks at you and knows you all the way to the bottom, all the brokenness, and he says, I love you. I've done everything necessary to bring you in and the voice of shame is the voice of the enemy. I will give deep conviction, but it's to heal you, to restore you, to make you new, to bring you in, to say, son, daughter, I am well pleased. Let's pray for this in Trinity Grace Chelsea, for the word to come with power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And it says that from that, an outpost of this community grew, an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's what the church is. It's a little planting in the ground and saying, in this area, we want God's will to be done just as it is in heaven right here. It's an outpost of another kingdom in the kingdom of New York City, in the kingdom of the world. And I'll put the passage up there. We've already read it, but you can just let your eyes gaze over it and just see the elements of what that means. What will it mean, Trinity Grace, Chelsea, to be an outpost of the kingdom of God? One is you'll have to learn to suffer some for the sake of love. It won't, like community, as you know this, it will get messy quickly. It won't just be like you're giving love and getting it back in equal measure with no conflict. (laughs) It will be tremendously hard. You'll have to learn to bear one another's burdens, to stand in one another's fountains of pain for a little while, to do the, the sacrificial work of learning the ministry of the ear and really entering someone else's story. They were learning to suffer for each other and, and to give generously to one another and to actually go into each other's burdens and to carry them. And you can't do that. You won't last long on just sheer religious willpower. You have to have the source, the divine source of the Holy Spirit refreshing you, that living water that's, that's regularly bubbling up. It has to be that abiding and bearing fruit, not trying hard and being disappointed. And it says the message rang out from them. This little foothold in Greece, the message of Jesus rang out from them. It literally swept across Europe and then across the, the ocean to America. Like the history of the world was changed as these churches are planted in Europe, in the New Testament. I want to ask you this. What is ringing out from your life? For for mine, so often it's like 
the things I'm worried about or right, the things I'm excited about, you know? I was thinking about this. No matter what you are, religious or not religious, you are a witness to your God. The thing that commands your highest allegiance, your deepest affection, your devotion, your time, your energy, that thing you are a witness to in word and deed. What's ringing out from our life? Do people know more of what Jesus is really like because of the ministry or the way you're living your life? Do they know more about what Jesus is like because of Trinity Grace Chelsea? I believe in many cases the answer is yes, but I believe there's more. I believe there's more for the message to ring out. They live the gospel in action. So we're going to go to the table now and celebrate this together and ask God what he what ways he has for us to respond. But here's the thing. There was a small victory for the kingdom of God in Greece. And it opened the door for the world to change. And the joy of one man who had a personal share in it comes leaping off the page to us. I can't believe this is happening again. But let it not be merely words. The same resurrected Jesus that encountered Paul and encountered this small Greek church is here calling you today. I want to pray, come Holy Spirit, wake us up. We're not just piddling around, coming to our sermon here in club at the end of the week, hoping to get a little encouragement to go back to work. We're a part of this movement of Jesus sweeping across the city, sweeping across the world. You have a share in it. There may be a dream God wants to give you where it's like, come to Macedonia, we need help. You know, Come to Wells Fargo. We need help. Come to PS 107. We need help. Come to, c- come to Africa. Come wherever the thing is that God is. You have a share in this kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Paul started with Jesus and the rest flowed out of there. Don't you see he's Messiah? He's where the story's always been going. Don't you see he's suffered? Don't you see he's risen? There's a wide open space for you. It's been purchased by Jesus and no one can close it unless you say no. Let me pray for you.